0: I hate introductions like that, because then you have to be good. (laughs) So they gave me a very short time to establish that the exodus is historical. (laughs) This is a a Jewish Ted talk. (laughs) So there's no time for jokes. I, I always use humor and I, I, I'm sorry there's just no time. So uh, this Irish spud moves to America <laughs> and uh, he meets this uh, Idaho potato and uh, they get married and they give birth to a little sweet potato. And, uh, She goes up and goes off to college, and she comes home one day and she tells her parents she's getting married. And they said, oh, that's wonderful. Who are you getting married? She said, "Uh, Richard Friedman. And they said, no, no daughter of ours will ever marry Professor Friedman. She said, why? I love him. Why can't I? And they said, because he's a commentator. I've always told that joke with Rashi in the past, and just tonight, you, you're my virgins. I tried it the egotistical way to see how it would work, you know. I didn't mean to get into the historicity of the Exodus, it was not on my agenda as a scholar. But uh, then things kept happening. Uh, Reformed Judaism magazine uh, of blessed memory. Uh, put out the issue a couple of years ago, just two weeks before Pesach, saying, uh, you know, there was a piece in there by uh, Professor Sperling um, and by uh, Rabbi Wolpe, both uh, questioning, especially Professor Sperling's strong terms, saying the exodus didn't happen. And I felt bad that two weeks later, a million Reformed Jews who get that magazine would be teaching their children at their seders that the exodus didn't happen. And I don't think that's right. So, a year later, Reform Judaism Magazine put in a piece by me saying that a it, 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 different point of view. And then a Temple Emanuel in New York, who copied your name, <laughs> invited uh, the, uh, Professor Sperling and me to debate. And they were doing a series of great debates. The one right before us was a debate on the culpability of Abraham in the sacrifice of Isaac, and it was Alan Dershowitz against Eliot Spitzer. <laughs> So, I think Sperling and I are what's known in present debating as the undercard. You know? <laughs> I won. And uh, <laughs> so he dropped out, so now in the, there's only me and Trump left. And that's, all, that's the only one I'll do, I promise. Of, of, of that. But we all keep hearing that. Uh, Archaeology has shown that the exodus isn't historical. That's a lie. That's the technical term we scholars use. It's a lie. I know who I sound like when I say that. That's the second one I'm going to do. That's the last. They say, we've combed the Sinai. You've, You've heard these arguments. We've combed the Sinai. And uh, if there had really been a couple million Israelites there for 40 years, we would have found evidence of that. What is wrong with that argument? Number one, nobody has combed the Sinai. (laughs) There have not been excavations all over the Sinai. I checked with one of my Israeli archaeologist friends, and he said it was five Jeeps. They did a survey, not an excavation, (laughs) of five Jeeps. He also told me that in the 73 war, an Israeli military vehicle was lost, and they found it a few years ago, and it was 16 meters down since 1973, CE, you know. So 33, 3400 BCE, you know, do the math. You know, that's a lot of sand. But even then, I would admit that if it was a couple million people for that long, we should have found something. You know, a piece of uh, hardened wood, petrified wood, saying, you know, Moshe Ohevet sipporah, you know, <laughs> carved in it. it. went from Aaron saying, Moses' mom always liked you better, you know, so, something. <laughs> the other evidence they say there are no references in Egypt to a great mass of Israelite slaves. That's true. And the argument that when uh, you, we've excavated ancient Israel uh, uh, in the 13th and 12th century, uh, early centuries of Israel's existence in the land, you don't find a lot of is, Egyptian culture. Like if we had come from there, there should be Egyptian pottery and architecture, and, and, and there isn't. And we can grant all that. But all of this is just evidence against the numbers. It doesn't prove there wasn't an exodus, it proves There maybe wasn't a big exodus. Now, where'd we get the two million number? The source in the Torah that says that, it's called the priestly source. If you don't know about the different sources of who wrote the Torah, I know a really good book I can recommend. (laughs) I had to do that. I I, I got into Torah for the money. As Bogart said in Casablanca, I was misinformed, <laughs> so, the so that's the priestly source. It's the latest source, it's many, it's at least half a millennium after when the event would have taken place, and it says 603,550 adult males. So you figure you do the math, the women, the kids, you're, you're uh, somewhere around two million. And, uh, mm-hmm. But it's the latest source. The earliest sources we have on the Exodus don't give any numbers. So the question is still open. What if it was a smaller group? Nearly everyone in my field, the biblical scholars, the archaeologists, the geologists, the Egyptologists, we all recognize that there were people from Western Asia living in Egypt, coming and going, for a period of about 400 years, which is, strangely, the number that is given in the Bible. It was about 400 years. They call them Asiatics, uh, Semites, Canaanites, Levantines, Uh, Whatever they they were, they were aliens in Egypt for hundreds of years and they were coming and going all the time They were everything from the lowest classes called the Shasu or the Apiru or the Habiru to uh, a dynasty of pharaohs the Hyksos and They just weren't all coming and going at once. They were going in millions. They were in the field Our technical term is it wasn't one big exodus. There were many exoditos You live in San Diego too long, you start. <laughs> I do want to say it's very nice to be back in California. I, I was 30 years uh, at UC, and, and, uh, and I did check out. And you, you can't ever leave. I mean, the Eagles are right. So a smaller exodus is well within reason. And all of the arguments that everybody use against it go away. Back in 1987, and Who Wrote the Bible, I included the possibility that it was just the Levites who were in Egypt. Then I just tossed it out as an idea. But that was in 87, and now we're in 2016, and I've been thinking about this for a long time. (laughs) The Levites are the people who later became the priests and teachers of Israel. They're some of the main authors of of the Bible, the authors of the majority of the Torah. What is the evidence that there was an exodus, but let's say it was just the Levites? For now, that's just a hypothesis we're testing because we're all honest scholars. We look at evidence. Only Levites have Egyptian names. In the Bible, the people with Egyptian names in Israel are Hophni, Hur, two men named Phineas, Merari, Mushi, Pashkur, and above all, Moses. Those are all Egyptian, not Hebrew names. And every one of those people is a Levite, and absolutely no one in the Bible in ancient Israel who's not a Levite has an Egyptian name. Now, we in America, of all places, get that. You go around the room here, and if we'd ask everybody your first and your last name, 70 or 80% of us, it would give away what our, our background is. And you can do that for all of America, because you know, we've come from many places. Friedman. Jew from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 90% of the time. Shaughnessy, not a Jew from the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Empire. So names mean a lot. And for those who say, well, there's no reflections in Israel of Egyptian culture and Egyptian presence, that's wrong, because names count. Second, the evidence of the, of the texts, the Two oldest texts in the Bible were proved by my great colleague, uh, David Noel Friedman, and my great teacher, Frank Moorcross, both of them we've lost in the last decade, the two greats of American Bible scholarship. Uh, established that the two oldest things in the Bible are the Song of the Sea, also known as the Song of Miriam, and the Song of Deborah in the Book of Judges. You note the two oldest things in the Bible, both named for women And nobody makes anything of that. Is that a small point? So in the Song of Miriam, or Song of the Sea, it describes the event at the Red Sea. And they sing of it. It shouldn't come as a surprise that the two oldest things in the Bible are both poetry, not prose. I asked my students, I asked audiences, which came first? Which did humans write first, poetry or prose? And I don't know. Most of us instinctively, I think, would say prose. And we'd be wrong. Because humans wrote poetry for a couple thousand years before we wrote poem, before we wrote prose. That's remarkable. Uh, You heard it here, you see why. Uh, This was stunning, this was beautiful. When I arrived, I I was moved by this. And not just that, but also before writing was easy, writing was very hard and very expensive in early centuries. It's much easier to remember poetry and music. So for example, I, I could, I won't. I could repeat to you the entire Beatles song book. <laughs> and about a 1,000 other songs. I could sing all the words. And most of you could do a lot of that, too. But I couldn't recite the Brothers Karamazov to you, which is about the same number of words as that. So we wrote poetry first. The Song of the Sea, beautiful. It talks about the Pharaoh's army. and You can read it, Exodus 15. The interesting word that's missing from the Song of the Sea is the word Israel. Never occurs in it. It never says Israel left Egypt. It never says Israel was near the sea. It says an Am, a people. And it never identifies who that Am is. And at the end, it says this Am went to God's holy mountain, to his sanctuary. He gives in four different ways. They don't end up at the whole land of Israel, they go to the sanctuary. Like, oh, I don't know, Levitical priests? Now, at the same time that you have that in the Song of the Sea, the other oldest thing we have is the Song of Deborah. And you go, well, what does that have to do with the Exodus? That's from the book of Judges. But Deborah is the founding mother of Israel. She leads all the tribes in the original battle that established hegemony over the land, the original defeat of the Canaanites. If you want to talk about the many candidates for who's the most underappreciated person in the Bible, the winner is Deborah. When I bless my daughters every Shabbat, I don't say, may you be like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, which they've rejected. I say, may you be like Deborah. Deborah is referred to in the song of Deborah as Emba Yisrael, which everybody says, mother in Israel, and they go, oh, isn't that beautiful? She was a good Jewish mother. Not only did she defeat the Canaanites and judged Israel, she made the best chicken soup in all of Bethel. (laughs) Bleh. That preposition in that early stage of Hebrew meant of, not in, not mother in Israel, mother of Israel, like George Washington, is father of the United States. That was when Israel became a nation, and in that song, she summons the 10 tribes there were of northern Israel to battle. Guess which one she doesn't mention, doesn't mention Levi. So let's think about it. our two oldest sources. Our oldest source in Israel, the song of Deborah, doesn't mention Levi. Our oldest song coming out of Egypt doesn't mention Israel. That's interesting. The revelation of the name of God in the Bible is told in two different places by two different authors. I'd have to do the whole who wrote the Bible thing, which I won't. But one of them is Moses at the burning bush, you know, asks God his name and God reveals it. And so until then, God's name, as understood, was not known. And then he says, my name is, and he says the name Yahweh, which isn't used by that author before that. And the other one is in Exodus 6, where God reveals to Moses, in a different author, says, my name is Yahweh, but your ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, didn't know that. They only called me El. So we have two different authors of the Bible, both of whom happen to be Levites. You have to trust me for that now have an idea that the name of God was not revealed until Moses and the generation of the Exodus. That reflects the hypothesis that it was the the ones who came out of Egypt, the Levites, who worshipped the god Yahweh. The first two occurrences of the name Yahweh known on earth are in texts that were found in Egypt. And they come and they arrive in the land of Canaan where everybody worshipped El as the chief god. And then they, they made a union, the Levite people from Egypt and the Israelites living in Israel, and they all became one. And, and everybody likes this. The Levites go, Lanzmann, we're here. And the Israelites say, welcome, you're here. You can't have any land. And so what land did the Levites get? Because the Levites are not people to whom you say no. Right? There are four stories about Levites in the Bible where they violate, where they're violent. They kill people in the golden calf episode. In the story of Dinah, it is Levi is one of the two brothers who massacre the city of Shechem. In the story of Phineas, you know, a story where he, he invents shish where he uh, kills two people in flagrante, you know? And so they made a, an understanding that the Levites become the priests and teachers of Israel. And they don't get any land, but they get 10% of everybody else's produce, a tithe. What else do we have? The most sacred object that the Levites have is the tabernacle. There is more about the tabernacle, the Mishkan, than about anything else in the Torah. Why is that tent such a big deal? architecturally, my student, uh, uh, Michael Homan, who's now a professor at uh, Xavier in New Orleans, wrote a book about tents. He was interested in, what are you going to do with scholars? He, he was interested in tents, and he showed that the, set, the, the description of the tabernacle with the courtyard thing around it and the shape and the, the, the ark and everything within it matches an actual drawing we have on an Egyptian wall of the battle tent of Ramses II, the most likely pharaoh of the time, Of the Exodus. At the same time he was doing that, Scott Nogle, a professor at the University of Washington, studied the ark, and he wrote an article called The Ark and the Bark. In Egypt they had these barks. Barks are boats, but barks in Egypt are never put in the water. They are carried by men on their shoulders on two poles, and on top of them is a box, which is a sacred object with wings of either cherubs or birds over them, plated with gold. Does that sound like any other object uh, that you know? So Nogle concluded the bark served as a model which the Israelites adapted for their own ark. Only Levite sources in the Torah, that's the E and the P sources, require circumcision. The non-Levite sources don't. Circumcision was an Egyptian practice. There's a law that says in the Torah in Deuteronomy, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in their land. And that is a law in a Levitic source in Deuteronomy 23. If you look at these Levite sources, you have to have the Freedmaniac Polychrome Bible to do this with the different texts identified. You find only the Levite sources have laws about how to treat a slave. The the J source, the one that's, non part of the part that was not written by a Levi priest never mentions the word slave uh, and, uh, once they get out of uh, once they're out of Genesis So I just did you a super fast version This is the best since you heard that rabbi Akiba had to teach there was rabbi Hillel had to teach the whole Torah While standing on one foot I I had both feet on the ground for this These people are not just the priests of Israel They become the teachers of Israel. And they wrote over and over the words that we keep in the Haggadah to this day. When your child asks you, why do we do these things? You will answer, because we were slaves to Pharaoh, and God brought us out of there with a strong arm. How many generations would it take of all the children and all the Sunday school, Shabbat schools in ancient Israel learning from their priests, their teachers, and eventually their parents, we were slaves in Egypt. How many generations would that take? Two, three, five? Until everybody grows up with the notion, we were slaves in Egypt. And so it is, everybody came to accept it. Is that so hard to believe? We all celebrate Thanksgiving. How many people in this room are descended from either the, 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 the Native Americans or the pilgrims who, who were at that event, if it happened, right? But we all accept it, and we plan, we buy a turkey, and we, you know, and, and this is very, very similar, and this is more powerful because it had much more religion uh, attached to it, and you were all learning it from your priests. If this is right, which you just got, you can imagine, the simplest version, it's a book but I'm not trying to sell my book. It's going to be a couple years before it comes out, so relax, but just, you know, I'm honest here. But, but the, uh, it, it had two more corollaries. One was the exodus from Egypt had to be much bigger. Once all of Israel came to accept that we were slaves in Egypt, then we couldn't go with it, it was just 500 people. And so we developed the numbers that there had to be millions, and my colleagues are driving all over these Jeeps in the, in, the, in the desert trying to find out uh, wh- why they can't find you know, two, 2 million Jews there. And the other was they had to invent the conquest. They had to look around and say, but wait a minute, if we all came at once, how do we all just get in here and move in? And so they invented the story of defeating Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and all that. And my archaeological colleagues correctly keep denying the conquest, and it's true, the, the destruction layers are in all the wrong places. It, it, it didn't happen. And thank God it didn't happen. People blame us for inventing genocide, for killing the people of Jericho and all the Canaanites and all. It didn't happen. It's a bum rap. And it's a bum rap that we put on ourselves. And you say, well, why would we accuse ourselves of a genocide that we never committed? And the answer is you look at the earliest two references to Israel known outside of the Bible are the Merneptah stele, Pharaoh Merneptah, who says, I defeated Israel, their seed is no more. And the second is the Mesha stele, the king of the Moabites, who said, I defeated Israel, their seed is no more. That's just what you said in those days. <laughs> we killed them, we moitered them. And so we did it too, but it didn't happen. And thank God it didn't. So uh, do you really think that the Israelites made up a story that they were not indigenous in their land, that they'd become a people someplace else? Do you think that they made up a story in which their priests had Egyptian names? Do you think they made up Moses? Do you think that they made up the story that Moses had a Midianite priest as his father-in-law? Do you think that the architectural match of their tabernacle with the battle tent of Ramses II was just coincidental? That the similarity of the Ark to the Egyptian bark was also coincidental? Was circumcision among the Levite sources only coincidental? Well, four references to being good to aliens in the Bible because we were aliens in Egypt, unrelated to ever having actually been there? Do 400 years of the presence of Semites in Egypt, from Hyksos pharaohs to Apiru slaves, not matter to this? Do you think that not finding 3,200-year-old evidence in the Sinai wilderness outweighs all of this? The combined evidence of text and archaeology is not that not only was the Exodus historical, it was essential to the development of monotheism. El and Yahweh are one. That's tomorrow's talk. If there was an Exodus, it was necessarily small in numbers. Does it really ruin your day if the Exodus was historical, but not all the Israelites were in it? It was more than an escape more than even a liberation, it was unknown to the people who experienced it, a necessary part, a foundational part of religion, literature, and history ever after. Shabbat Shalom. (laughs)